Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Hollers podcast, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 13. We'll be starting at verse 13. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Leslie, would you please lead us? Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we have together and, and for the many blessings and the freedom we have in the spirit, your spirit. We pray that you will set us free by teaching us the truth tonight and that we may share your truth and the Christian life with others and that they too may be followers of Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And good evening, Mark. Oh, hi, Tom. It's good to be back with everyone. We've been having at least uh, what I regard an interesting time examining the book of Acts. We've been looking at uh, some themes that aren't commonly uh, mentioned in churches in the United States at least, but a growing number of scholars are picking up on these themes. We see the restoration of Israel carried forward from the Gospel of Luke right into and through the book of Acts, the restoration of David's kingdom, which of course was Israel. We see the theme of a second exodus carrying all the way through the book and a a call for the Judean people to come out of their corrupted religion as well as to leave behind the law of Moses, which even if it was being followed properly could never take away uh, sin. And there's at least another theme beneath the surface, which is uh, building the temple of God, the spiritual temple, which is made up of the believers who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And we've reached kind of a fulcrum point here in Acts 13 where Saul of Tarsus, who has been mentioned off and on but hasn't been a chief player, uh, right here between verse 12 and verse 13 in chapter 13, instead of just being one of Barnabas's companions named Saul, now we see that the company is Paul and his companions. Paul has taken the lead while they were on the Isle of Cyprus, which we saw fulfilled several prophecies relating to the good news being carried to the Isles of the Sea. And they have gone to the two major cities of Cyprus. And we'll see that's a pattern that Paul will continue throughout his work, that he doesn't stop in in small towns. He goes to the major cities of an area, and then he 
conveys knowledge to a core group of dedicated individuals who will then spread from the metropolitan centers and cover the entire province. So they've just done that, and that uh, sets the stage here for verse 13. Then let's read verses 13 through 15. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. All right, thank you, Leslie. So they sailed uh, basically north from uh, Cyprus. They had to sail, I guess, around the island a bit before they could go north to land on the southern coast of what in modern day is uh, Turkey. In those days, that part that jutted out was the south coast of Asia Minor. And they came to Perga, which was near the river uh, Sestris, and you had to go about seven miles up the river to reach Perga. And then it was three miles up from the river bottom up to the city, which was up on a uh, flat-topped hill looking out over the river valley. Uh, it was This was a heavily Greek area and had been for some time since Alexander the Great. At this point, John Mark uh, left Barnabas and Paul there and went back home, which was Jerusalem. We know his mother had a very nice house in Jerusalem, which is specifically mentioned as where one of the home churches met there um, in the book of John, the Gospel of John. So he's apparently from a fairly well-off Judean family, and he left and went back. This becomes a future point of contention between Paul and Barnabas, and Paul kind of regards this as a desertion of their mission at this point. And we don't really know. You know, it was a dangerous road, we're told, uh, to go inland from this point. Uh, There were lots of robbers and stuff, so we don't know if uh, he was uh, upset about Barnabas, who he he was related to, being kind of demoted and Paul taking over, or whether he was uh, disconcerted about the dangers of the trail. But anyway, we we don't know. Anyway, they had to head uh, inland, They gained uh, 3,600 feet of altitude from the time they landed until the time they got to Pisidian Antioch. They had to cross over some uh, mountains. And as they had done on Cyprus, they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And there would have been a, a prescribed reading out of the law, uh, out of the first five books, uh, of Moses every week that uh, the, the synagogues would read. And then some scholars believe that the passages from the prophets were selected not in sequence, but as they applied or could be related to the section of the law that they were reading that week. And many scholars have speculated on the reading that day based 
on Paul's message here, uh, thinking that Paul might have been building on the reading that they all had just heard. And it was customary for the for visiting members, at least uh, Judeans and proselytes, to be asked if they wanted to give a word of exhortation, just as when Jesus came back to Nazareth, you know, he read and then got to uh, make a commentary on it. Here, the uh, these guests are added. They probably uh, ended this practice uh, shortly <laughs> after this, but but we don't know. But of course, uh, most churches today would not tolerate uh, such a practice. If uh, one of us came in uh, and they didn't know what we were going to say, they would not give us a chance to address uh, the assembly. They would be uh, horrified of such a possibility, in fact. But here, the uh, rulers of the synagogue invited uh, them to, uh, to give a word of encouragement to the people. All right, uh, let's see. We know, of course, there had to be a Jewish colony in this town because there's a synagogue there. And, of course, this became the center for all of their work, as we, again, had seen on Cyprus. All right, any comments on these few verses before we go into Paul's uh, message? All right, let's read verses 16 through 22, please. And Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. All right, thank you very much. So Paul is uh, taking advantage of this great opportunity to speak to people who are well acquainted with all of the Hebrew scriptures. In all of these Greek areas, in addition to the uh, people of Judean nationality who attended the synagogue, there were Gentiles or people of other nations besides Judah who came and attended and The women would have been more easily made into proselytes. The men would have been required to be circumcised before they were considered a member of the synagogue and, um, you know, a voting member and so on. A lot of these women probably had husbands who came along with them 
and there may have been other men too, like Cornelius, who we saw earlier, who uh, who just who wanted to learn about the true God of Israel, but stopped short of circumcision, which was almost irreversible, and it was a real barrier for a lot of these uh, men in the Greek culture to become full proselytes to the Judean religion. But Paul addresses all of these, the the Israelites who are the physical descendants of Israel or Jacob and the God-fearers who were there who were not uh, descendants of Israel. He begins pretty much with the Exodus. He just gives a, just a real short preface to the Exodus by saying that the forefathers were chosen and that then they were brought out, they were exalted and then brought out of Egypt with an uplifted arm. This is talking about the divine intervention and the miraculous signs that were done to bring Israel out of Egypt. Judea has become Egypt, which chapter 12 kind of saw it. They had, instead of being the bride of God as they were supposed to be, they were the enemy of God, and they were encouraging uh, persecution of followers of Christ. And so Paul is starting with this imagery of God bringing forth his people with signs and wonders and an uplifted arm uh, out of Egypt. And then he mentions that uh, he supported them for 40 years in the wilderness. Coincidentally, you know, we see about 40 years between the murder of Jesus Christ at the hands of the Judean people and the complete destruction of the Judean people in A.D. 70. Then they are given the land. Uh, importantly, in, uh, in verse 19, all of the previous residents were completely destroyed so that this land could be given to the Israelite people. The seventh nation if we go back and add them up, would be the Jebusites who hung on to the city of Jerusalem until the middle of David's reign. So this was some 450 years from the coming up out of Egypt until the time that the last Jebusites were eliminated out of the land of Canaan, which, of course, was the earlier name for Palestine before the Philistines uh, you know, landed there about the same time that the Israelites arrived. After they had come into the land, they had judges up until the time of uh, Samuel the prophet, who was the last judge and also the first prophet really uh, denoted as a prophet since Moses. And they asked for a king in the days of Samuel, and God gave them uh, Saul a man from the tribe Benjamin, Paul, of course, was named after this man in all likelihood, the most famous uh, member of the tribe of Benjamin from which Paul came. Forty years is mentioned here again in verse 21. Saul was removed. Uh, he, well, I don't know if it's right to say he's a mistake. If he was a mistake, he was a mistake of the Israelite people, not of God. But he allowed them to replace Yahweh as their king, with Saul as their king, and it didn't work out too good. So, after God removed Saul, he raised up uh, David to be their king. 
and this is very, very important to the theme of Paul's talk here, and of course to the entire book of Acts, being the restoration of Israel. Uh, David is called a man after God's own heart, in spite of his uh, flaws and sin, which was extreme. He had a willingness to do what God wanted and a strong desire to serve God and to place all of his hope in God for his salvation. And a love for God. Yes, a deep uh, love for God. The the uh, 89th Psalm kind of expounds upon this. It is based a little bit on the narrative found in Second uh, Samuel 7 where God first makes the promise to maintain David's dynasty in perpetuity. The 89th Psalm kind of romanticizes this account a little bit. I have set the crown upon one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall ever abide with him. My arm also shall strengthen him, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his line forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. So, this promise was well known to all Judeans, being mentioned several times in their uh, scriptures, and no descendant of David had served since Zedekiah was uh, deposed by the Babylonians in uh, 586 B.C. So David's line had been extinct for a long time when Jesus came. Uh, Ezekiel uh, said at one point, there shall not be even a trace of it, talking about uh, the Davidic kingship, there shall not even be a trace of it until he comes whose right it is, and to him I will give it. And there are many, many prophecies that talk about restoring David's throne. And of course our, our Zionist friends are still waiting for all of these to be fulfilled. They admit that Christ is on some sort of throne in heaven, but that these promises all refer to the physical chair that David sat in, which will be reconstituted from the dust of the ages in physical Jerusalem, and he will physically rule for 1,000 literal years from that literal chair or throne of David. And some may differ on some details, but that's uh, the main gist of it. So anyway, Paul moves on quickly uh, to David, and then he's going to have more to say about David. So you might want to hold your questions uh, on that till we see what else Paul says about David. But are there any other uh, thoughts or comments here uh, down through verse 22? All right, well, let's read uh, down through verse 37, please. From the offspring of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, 
he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Thou wilt not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. All right, thank you. So up until this point, Paul has only stated things that his audience would all heartily agree with. But now he brings in quickly Jesus. And of course they would have uh, spoken Greek in this synagogue, even though many of the Judeans may have known Aramaic, some probably would not have, and then all of the non-Judeans there would have uh, not been familiar with Aramaic at all. And so these are the Hellenistic synagogues or Greek-speaking synagogues, just like the one in Jerusalem where Stephen got into trouble. So it would have been Jesus instead of Yeshua, presumably, as the name of the Christ here. Uh, that was spoken just as it was written in Greek for us here by Luke. And so Paul is going to uh, make the case that this Jesus is the restoration of David's line that has been long promised to Israel. He brings in the work of John the Baptizer, which of course probably had spread throughout the Roman world to all the synagogues because a number of Judeans of each synagogue would go up for at least one of the feasts in Jerusalem every year. And so the word of of John would have been spread uh, back. And as we have seen, anyone who studied uh, the prophecy of Daniel would have known that the time was 
there that the Messiah should come. Even the Pharisees had uh, changed the uh, description of the Messianic age from the age that is coming to the age that is about to come. Uh, they did that about the time that Christ was born. So these signs were not unknown to these scattered synagogues uh, throughout the Roman world. They would have heard of, about these things. But he explains about the work of John and that John was just the uh, the precursor to the Messiah as predicted by Isaiah and Malachi, amongst others. He then, in verse 26, addresses the sons of Abraham's race, the Israelites, and all the others there who worship the true God, that this message of salvation has been sent to all of us. He then mentioned that the leaders in Jerusalem and most of the inhabitants failed to recognize Jesus as the Christ. And here he says, not understanding the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. So this, this address is very parallel to Peter's address to the large crowd on Pentecost. And it has some similarities to Stephen's address uh, before his execution. But it's kind of implied here that the main point of the prophets was to talk about the coming of Christ. That the, the main function of, the, of reading the prophets was to get everyone ready for Jesus Christ. And that even though these people were listening to these prophecies on a weekly basis... They did not understand them. And sadly, again, we can say that many of our dispensational and Zionist friends have the same exact problem. They do not understand the utterances of the prophets that pointed to Jesus, and they're trying to point it to uh, the physical nation of Israel and other things yet to be fulfilled, which is a great, great tragedy. These people misunderstood the prophets and then uh, asked Pilate that Jesus should be killed even though they couldn't prove anything really against him either according to Judean law or according to Roman law. But they unwittingly through their hard-heartedness and ignorance they unwittingly fulfilled all that had been written about him. The law of Moses back in uh, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, just after stating or restating that the lawful mode of execution in Israel would be stoning, it says, Nevertheless, if you do hang a man on a tree, he is cursed, and you will not leave him on the tree overnight. You will remove him and bury him the same day. <laughs> Which is kind of amazing, uh, because, of course, that was all written talking about Jesus, his manner of death, and even how he was buried. And so Paul is alluding to that uh, passage out of Deuteronomy 21 and showing how all of these little details uh, were fulfilled. So even though these people unlawfully judged Jesus as guilty, God, by implication here, in verse 30, overrode that judgment and 
instead raised him from the dead. And he appeared over several days, and we're told that's 40 days. Paul had another chance to use the number 40, but he chose not to here, apparently. <laughs> or at least it didn't get recorded that way. Uh, he, he appeared to witnesses from Galilee to Jerusalem, and these are now the witnesses to the people. The people being, of course, the Judean people, Israel. So we bring you good news about the promise made to our forefathers. God has fulfilled it to us. Now that's key in verse 33, that word fulfilled, because the uh, the dispensational mythology is that God's plan failed at the cross and that everything that happened after that on the day of Pentecost and afterwards was not a fulfillment but was some kind of hurried afterthought to cover up a complete uh, failure of God to fulfill his promises to Israel. And yet right here Paul states that God has fulfilled his promises to Israel by raising up Jesus. And so it doesn't leave really a lot uh, undone for the future, unfortunately. And in fact, we find not one verse in the New Testament that speaks of the failure of any of God's plan. Uh, Quite the opposite. Uh, We see many other passages that speak, as this one does, of fulfillment, but none that really speak of failure. And he moves then on into the uh, first and second psalm. Uh, You are my son today. I have begotten you. And then he talks about raising Jesus from the dead to return to corruption no more, that he will provide the sure mercies of David. And this comes from Isaiah 55, verses 3 through 7. And it relates uh, also to the restoration uh, of the kingdom. And it's also speaking of the resurrection of the son of David. And both Peter and Paul are going to show that this was not speaking of David himself because David did die and his body saw corruption whereas Jesus was raised from the dead and his body saw no corruption so he's he's made a very powerful uh, statement here to prove that all of the promises made to Israel have been fulfilled in their day and that it should be a time and occasion of great rejoicing. In fact, he even quotes some of the same things that Simeon said way back when the baby Jesus was brought to the temple to be dedicated when he held him up and said this uh, child will be a cause for a great stumbling in Israel but a light uh, for the nations. That's getting ahead a little bit here because uh, that's a little bit later on Mm -hmm. in the talk here. But um, anyway, this is a very exciting lesson that uh, Paul is bringing, and it's uh, 
the best account we have of one of these addresses, and it probably shows the pattern that he uh, used in all these synagogues here, and uh, it's very powerful not only for the Judeans and the God-fearing Gentiles of that day, but it has a great message for us today as well, uh, sorely needed. Uh, again, we need to point everyone back to Jesus Christ and away from these false ideas and uh, institutional religion which have uh, corrupted so much in our country today. I'm going to uh, end at this time and we'll pick up uh, next week, but uh, I'll ask if there's any comments or questions uh, down through verse 37 here before we close. You mentioned uh, the restoration of kingdom. You mean the spiritual kingdom, of course, right? As we have uh, seen in the book of Acts and by going back to the prophets, that, that Israel would be, would be saved in the days of the Messiah by resurrection and transformation. Israel, as a nation, was dead. Judah was the remnant that remained. Most of Israel had been scattered through the uh, years and was gone. But these promises were not just to the remnant. They were to the whole house of Israel. Peter addressed the whole house of Israel. And we saw that that was connected to Ezekiel 37, where the prophet saw the, the valley uh, full of dry bones, and he spoke, and the Spirit of God came and filled those bones and resurrected the nation of Israel. And he was told, Son of man, this, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Peter on Pentecost says, Let the whole house of Israel know. So the kingdom is being restored by being transformed into a spiritual kingdom, as you have noted, Leslie. Yes, good good point. All right, well, thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.